G'day and welcome to a grad chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's grad chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much. Now, of course, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And just a reminder, the clarity still isn't quite good because we're not back in the studio yet. But uh, as we said last year, we're going to continue, pandemic or not, we're going to continue with the grad chat. Now, what I should have said right at the beginning of the show when I first started was, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, 2020 has finally gone and we are in the 2021. So we are extremely happy about that and I hope you are too. As we mentioned in the last show last year, we've got lots to to do this year on Grad Chat, speaking to both our graduate students and, of course, uh, postdoctoral fellows. And we're going to bring in a few themes this year just to sort of shake it up a little bit. So, like I said, Happy New Year. Hope you all had a good break uh, over the holiday period and I hope you're looking forward to this year. Today, I would like to introduce you to Andrew Moffat, who is doing a PhD in English Language and Literature under the supervision of Professor Gabrielle McIntyre. Welcome to Grad Chat, Andrew. Hi, thank you for having me. I mean, this is the hard part. We can't see each other right now because yeah. we're, I'm in Kingston. I'm not sure where Andrew is. Is it Toronto or something? It's in Toronto, yeah. Yeah, so it's really hard because you don't get the same sort of interaction as you would if we were sitting in the studio together. So it cracks me up sometimes how these things work. And what what has been really interesting is that I've been trying to get Andrew on the show for a long time. And Mm -hmm. our um, editor, as as a lot of you know, Sue Yin, who is also in English, is a very good friend of Andrew. And she kept saying, keeps saying to him, you know, you've got to go on, you've got to go on. And I think you've been avoiding me, Andrew, but no, we've, we've <laughs> finally slammed you. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to tell us today. So I, I guess we should get started, shouldn't we? Yeah. It's too much of me sort of, sort of gas bagging on, but there we go. That's the way it works. So today with Andrew, like I said, he's in English, language and literature, and your topic is called ideology, production and reproduction Mm -hmm. in the work of Virginia Woolf, Marie Stopes and HD, which I did check, stands for Hilda Doolittle. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. So can you just tell me a little bit about each of those three authors? Because most people have probably heard of Virginia Woolf, not necessarily Marie Stopes or HD. Hmm. Yeah, so you're correct. Virginia Woolf is one of the most canonical kind of modernist writers so she wrote lots of well-known works, Mrs. Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, are uh, texts that listeners will probably be familiar with. And then we have H.D., who's another modernist figure, but not as well-known. She was more known for being a poet, an imagist poet, but she also went into writing modernist prose. And then we have Marie Stopes, who is well-known more for being a birth control campaigner, especially in Britain. But along with her birth control campaign, she also wrote a number of uh, novels, plays and poetry as well. So straddles these two fields of sex campaign and also the fiction. Right. And why does HD not use her full name? Was that on purpose? 
So she started out, as I said, as an images poet, closely working with Ezra Pound, who listeners might know of. He was a very prolific modernist poet at the time. And it was his idea, actually, to shorten her name from Hilda Doolittle to HD. I imagine he thought it just made her work spark a little more. You know, she has this short, snappy, uh, initialed name rather than Hilda Doolittle. And that was how he basically started to commercialize and sell her work as HD. And it wasn't because being a woman, sometimes it's harder to get the acknowledgement? Yeah, you could argue that actually, especially in the modernist period, this period of literature in the 1910s, 1920s was very male dominated, very masculine. So to take away from this Hilda Doolittle name, this obviously this feminized name to HD would definitely give it that kind of masculine element, which a lot of um, modernist aesthetics kind of aspired for. Right, right. Okay, so that's a bit of a background because I I know when I first saw the information that Andrew gave me, I thought, I better look these people up. (laughs) So I look a little bit uh, like I know what I'm talking about. And the old HD, it's interesting what comes up when you just type in HD onto Google. And I'm glad to say I picked the right one. So that was good. So how about you give us a bit of an overview of your research before we get into some of the nitty gritty questions? Hmm. Okay, so my interest began with Virginia Woolf. I've had an interest in her for a long time. I did my MA on Virginia Woolf. And I'm interested in how she, as modernist writer, responded to war, which is usually a very male-dominated phenomenon. When we think of World War I literature, it's usually, you know, Wilfred Owen and Sassoon, Rupert Brooke. So I wanted to look at how she, as a woman, wrote about the war and developed a pacifist voice in response to the war even as someone who wasn't a combatant, you know, she didn't fight in the war. Right. And then I was interested in the pacifist activism which was happening at this time. And a lot of it was always to do with motherhood. A lot of these pacifist activists developed their theories of anti-war through the idea of being a mother and using what would be traditional nurturing instincts to counteract the war and the fact that you know, their sons had been fighting this war and dying in this war. So that was the core of a lot of pacifism at this time. So looking into motherhood as a form of pacifism was the first step into this project. But then it starts to get really complicated when we get to Marie Stopes, because she was the major voice in motherhood at this time, but she was also pro-empire, pro-war, So it really complicates the issue. So that's where I started to get into the nitty gritty of this project when I arrived at Marie Stopes. But then why did you bring in someone like HD, who's American, isn't she? She's American, yes. American who moved to Britain before the war. She was was in London as the war was happening and she was married at that point to a British man who was a soldier in the army. So yeah, she had a very personal experience with the war as well as a woman in London. So uh, I came to to HD because she experienced a miscarriage during the war and she writes about it very deeply and profoundly in her prose in a way that kind of resists the way which Stokes was idealising motherhood at this time. So that's really why I decided to 
examine her work. Three very different characters that makes it very interesting for your research, kind of like three different points of view. I mean, two of them sort of being on the same side, but still having their differences. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. It's interesting too because when I first read about what Stopes is and and Mm -hmm. also some, some of the information that you put in the template for me, I had no idea that kind of thing was going on. It's quite interesting mm. from, from, that, from, those, uh, from those times. So I, I guess the main part that you're looking at is looking at, you know, as you've got here, you know, why was reproduction and birth control such an important issue during the interwar years? Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that's between the first and second year wars. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wars. So why is it? And is it because of people like Stopes that – that it was, it was an important issue, more vocal than others. Oh, yeah, her work was hugely popular. It sold thousands of copies, her work on birth control and sex advice. But I think more she was responding to this period. If you think about World War I, many men had been killed. These societies were traumatised, so much loss. And the social establishment was also ruptured with many women moving into the public sphere. So she was kind of responding to those upheavals and she was establishing her ideas on reproduction and maternity in response to that to try and, you know, bring back some kind of normalcy to British society. So, yeah, there were upheavals and she was responding to it and making um, motherhood more of an issue, a, a bigger issue at this time. It's, it seems like she was also trying to go back to what once was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the female is the homemaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The woman of the household is the homemaker and mm-hmm. um, the man of the house goes out and works. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, in, in both world wars, uh, f- women had to help out the country yeah. while the men are off mm-hmm. at war. So f- for some of those women, it would, would have been a backward step. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I think that's what many women felt at this time when, you know, suddenly the advances they made in the war were revoked. And yeah, I think Stopes echoes that sentiment. You know, she was really for reimposing these very traditional gender roles for men and women in response to the war, which saw them completely, you know, disrupted. So, yeah, she was trying to restore that kind of balance in society. But I think she, if if I've understood the readings that I've just did before this mm-hmm. interview, I think she potentially took it one step too far, didn't she? Because she, she did, was talking yeah. about this eugenics. Yeah. Maybe you can um, explain what eugenics is. Mm-hmm. So it's the use of reproduction or, or um, childbirth to achieve some kind of racial end goal. So it could be... Positive eugenics is where you want, you know, a particular section of society to reproduce more, or it could be negative eugenics where you try to bar certain people from reproducing. So Stokes would probably be what would be called a positive eugenics. She wanted middle class, white, educated British British people to reproduce more to have the desired effect. Which goes against everything that we we know (laughs) (laughs) because it's making not necessarily a superior race but a a specific race definitely yeah Mm -hmm. it really kind of evacuates our social institutions of the ability to educate 
Stopes is kind of saying our healthcare education is not going to make model citizens. It's reproduction. It's something inert and biological, which is a very problematic viewpoint, I think. Well, particularly when you just said she was focusing on the middle class people. Mm-hmm. So what's that saying about those in lower income and those in the upper income people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are they, are they, it, is reproduction beneath them? or not possible. I mean, when I first looked to see what Stopes was thinking, I'm thinking, oh, she wants Mm -hmm. to keep the British Empire together. And this is one way of keeping what everyone sees as British. Right. Yeah. It's very traditional idea of Britishness. Yeah. Which definitely becomes uncomfortable when we think about the emergence of fascism at this time and right wing sentiment. Yeah. Right becomes uncomfortable yes yes <laughs> so you've been uncomfortable talking about it isn't it? <laughs> so how do issues of biological and literary reproduction converge at this time right so i mentioned that stopes was a birth control campaigner and she produced sociological texts which advised people on how to reproduce eugenically but she was also a writer of fiction and she produced plays and novels and poetry which basically showed the intended effects of that message. So what we're seeing in her work is a reproduction of a text to also present this desired um, ideal of Britishness after the war. And this is when it starts to become problematic. So I guess, like you said, she's not changing the the message. She's Mm -hmm. just putting it in a a more readable format. Right. might be more accepting to people thinking, oh, this is just a novel. Yeah, right, exactly. So this is the moment when, you know, mass-produced texts really became at the forefront of uh, Western culture. And she's disseminating this ideal in her texts without really critiquing the ideology underlying them. So she was pro-empire without kind of understanding that militarism always underlines colonialism. Right. So when we're talking about issues of biological and literary reproduction, how Mm -hmm. they converge at this time, you've mentioned how Stopes, and it's probably very easy to see how Stopes is part of this, but Mm -hmm. what about Virginia Woolf and H.D.? How do Mm -hmm. they fit into this phrase? So as modernists, they would follow the maxim that we shouldn't be kind of reproducing these pre-standing ideals in our work. We should be critiquing them. We should be kind of looking for ways to deconstruct them. So they would say that art follows life. You should use art to interrogate what happens in the real world and try to generate this kind of resistance in your readers to make them question what they see or what they understand about life. So when we read Wolf and HD, they're quite difficult texts because they defamiliarize what we understand about reality and they're even quite alienating. So both of these writers are trying to present things like militarism in a new light in a way that their readers wouldn't traditionally understand them. And that kind of goes against what Stopes was doing when she was trying to reiterate these pre-standing ideals in society. So this is where we get these two writers kind of indirectly attacking what Stopes was doing in her work. Did people get that in in those times? I'm I'm just wondering what Stopes does. Would they necessarily read what Virginia Woolf and HD wrote? So they're working very different circles. Yeah, very different markets. 
Yeah. So when we think of modernists like Wilson HD, we see them as being quite elitist and really right in for a small segment of society. And yeah, that is true in a way. Wolf would not have had as big as a readership as Stopes did. And that is kind of a way in which she critiqued Stopes' idea of like mass reproduction and reaching a mass audience, because that can also be, you know, quite manipulative when you're reaching out to a, to a load of people. So, so yeah, we find people like Wolf and HD more at the grassroots, but th- their work still had effect. You know, they still contributed to this pacifist movement going on at the time. It's interesting because, I mean, just going through school, you know, high school and everything, you may have been asked to read something of Virginia Woolf, but... Yeah. I don't remember hearing anything about Stopes or, even, to be honest, even HD. So mm-hmm. in terms of Stopes, who's looking for mass production and mass people reading, I wonder how well she succeeded on that. Definitely in her birth control advice. She's really now known as the pioneer of birth control in, in Britain for good things. I think mostly the public has forgotten her leanings towards eugenics and remembered her for what she was good at, was, which was bringing contraceptives into the public domain. Right, right. So yeah, she's definitely well known for that. But I think when you bring in this fictional work, it begins to problematise what we know about her. Right. And I think a lot of public discussion nowadays is about kind of revisiting these figures who we thought we knew and reframing what their work was. And I know I keep going back to Stopes because it's mm-hmm. interesting because, yes, you're right with about the contraception and things of, mm-hmm. of the use of that. But she was against abortion. She was, yeah. So th- there was some control there, but not control, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she was so very much against abortion, yeah. It was actually quite advanced for, for that period of time, don't you think? She was, yeah. Her message was breaking many kind of norms about sexuality, about the ability for British people to express themselves sexually. So yeah, she did break a lot of those boundaries. But in the same way, it was also funneled into something quite conservative. And I think that made her message accessible for people because she was preaching this idea of sexual liberation, but it was also within marriage. And it was also about stabilising the family and reproducing this eugenically clean race. So, yeah, she was very adept at making this very quite extreme message palatable for her readers. I wonder, with all three of them, I don't know if you've looked at this, but what was their writing like before the war? Or did the war, did the war become a catalyst for changing their thinking? Mm, yeah, definitely. With figures like Wolf. She was still writing in quite traditional way prior to the war. But then when the war broke out, that really pushed her to try and find new aesthetic forms for capturing the trauma of the war. So usually critics see her career as the interwar period as being her most experimental. With HD, she was still considered an imagist poet before the war. But then after the war, she broke out and started to explore different aesthetics. She moved into things like prose. She kind of shared this HD identity, which Pound had given her, to develop her own style. And that's all to do with her own trauma 
that she experienced during the war as well. Right. So a lot of them really brought on some of their own traumas into their writing. Post-war. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So are there, are there any comparisons you can draw between the interwar period and you know, what is currently happening in global politics? Mm-hmm. Well, reproduction is still being politicised now. Like mm-hmm. in many countries, affordable birth controls withheld, lack of accessible sex education, bans on abortion. All these things show that certain governments are still trying to control the way people reproduce, the way people use their sexuality. I think it's really speak to the fact that we need to dispel archetypes of parenthood. You know, we need to maintain it as a more of an individualistic activity, you know. So in terms of writing, though, mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's sort of going, uh, potentially going away from these three authors that you're looking at, but but since World War One and World War Two, we've had a lot of big wars that have affected us in different ways. And I'm just wondering if in, in English literature there was other significant writing that came out post some of those wars that we could talk about, like we are talking about the reproduction. Uh Probably a bit outside your time, but I'm just wondering if that's in in general, or is it just in general, it's because people have often write about something around their own experience, whether they call it their own experience or Mm -hmm. someone else's. And talking politics, now, has there been anything big that's come out of other wars that we that we still politicise and things. Yeah, that would be a fascinating follow-up project to look at. That's a post-op position. Outside of modernism. Maybe I can ask you one more question. These three three authors, I mean, they're clearly very different from each other and brought different different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Now that you've been delving into these authors even more, what do you think about these authors now? Can you read something from Virginia Woolf now and just read it and enjoy it? Or are you always analysing? <laughs> I think any literature you know, graduate <laughs> would tell you that it's impossible to do that with any literature now. We're always looking for analytical meaning. <laughs> right, yeah. Read. yeah. But- do you ever do you enjoy reading them now, though? <laughs> These particular writers are all literature. Well, all, all literature, I guess. I mean, do you enjoy reading literature just for the fun of it? I can remember a time vaguely when I used to be able to read for pleasure. <laughs> and yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I think at the moment I'm very much kind of absorbed my research and that's taken up most of my time. Right. But yeah, I think people who create a career out of studying literature, yeah, we obviously love it. I mean, I, I love it mm. very much. And yeah, the more you study it, the more you can understand different ways of writing, different ways of engaging with your public. Right. So even when I study a non-modernist text, I find fascinating instances of how they're kind of departing from what modernists did or they're developing what the modernists did. So yeah, it really opens up your reading experience. I think... It's interesting because I love reading. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love reading, but I like sometimes reading where I don't have to think too hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when I got, when I became part of Queen's Reads, where we had to sort of think about, you know, what's the message that the author is trying to put across here? Yeah. 
totally changed my perspective on reading and I'm thinking mm. I just want to read <laughs> I don't want to figure out why they went that route and I think that's the difference between for me like a textbook versus a novel I mean a novel I, sh- I want to just I just want to enjoy it but the, right. there are all these other underlying perspectives or ideas within yeah. these novels right and I think each of these writers would say, no, literature is not for fun. <laughs> it has yeah. some kind of, you know, end goal, you know, whether that's to right. change the way we think or control the way we think. So, yeah, it's interesting looking at literature as a kind of ideological thing. And I think that, and I could be totally wrong here, this is just my opinion. I actually think novels from before the modern period well maybe before the 1950s and things were more had more that ideology within mm-hmm. within it mm-hmm. whereas as a lot of stories now it really is oh it's just a bit of fun or made up right um, yeah mm-hmm. although i'm sure i could find something in there mm. but i think back then it was more it was very specific there was a very mm-hmm. very deep meaning for why they wanted to start writing it was it was a voice for them Yes, definitely. That's... As opposed to just a paycheck. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's definitely the way, especially how Wolf perceived of her crafts. It, it was it was an art for her. It wasn't, well, she still needed some of the money from selling books, but I think primarily she really wanted to engage with the way her readers approached her texts and the way they um, analysed what she was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you you would uh, that would be the same for someone like HD mm-hmm. who, who started off with imagery and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, any artist is wanting to get people to look at it in a certain way, or they had a reason for drawing it that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. building it that way. Yeah, that's that's so cool. it's absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. It is, yes. <laughs> the more we get it, so it's no it's no wonder that you guys want to do a PhD. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can just totally consume yourself with this with this work these works you can there's so much so many levels to them you can really dig deep behind the text yeah it's it's really fascinating well i i think i mean you've opened up for me two new names for me to go and look at a little Mm -hmm. bit closer Mm -hmm. so thank you for that that's more reading for me so i appreciate that um And maybe that'll get some other people out there too, looking at these uh, authors in a different light. Yes, I hope so. so. So thank you very, very much for coming on the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I know, like I said, we've sort of been trying to get you on for a while and we finally got you. So I'm really happy yes. about that. <laughs> and I hope you, um, I mean, how far are you from finishing? Hopefully this year. I think that's the kind of schedule we have to defend Yeah, for the end of this year. Fantastic. Yeah. That is really good. Well, best of luck with that. I know you're going to do it just fine because you clearly know what you're talking about because <laughs> um, it's fascinating. I think you could have just done a, a PhD just on Stopes because she sounds a very intriguing woman. Yeah, she certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, having the three too is it's, it's good to see the comparisons there of what was going on around a similar time. So, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. really I thank you very much for highlighting that to us. Yeah, you're welcome. Excellent. <laughs> so that's it, everyone. A another week of grad chat suddenly comes to an end. Like I said, happy new year. Hope you all had a good break uh, over the holiday period, and look. At, I hope you're looking forward to this year. 
please still be safe and and look after yourselves and i'm wishing everyone a very very happy new year don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes a google podcast or a sticker just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Oh,